This week's episode of The Clear Out was recorded on the 5th of October 2021 at home in Wicklow. I didn't know what I was going to speak about in this episode moments before I pressed record. So if it lacks a bit of punch on the through line, that's not an accident. <laughs> um, I sort of quickly pulled together my my subject uh, in the moments before I pressed record and I decided to speak about fathers. And this is not a definitive analysis or reflection or considered um, assessment of fatherhood and fathers. Uh, that's something I'd probably like to do at a later stage. But I chose to hang this reflection on the American father as depicted in popular American culture. And I focused on Tony Soprano from The Sopranos and Walter White from Breaking Bad. And I also looked at Arthur Miller's plays, uh, All My Sons and Death of a Salesman. So those four in particular. And really, I guess it became a bit of a focus on the 20th century American male and the crises of identity that each of those characters faced and their own response to the collapse of the American dream or the pressure of the American dream. That is the primary driver of this episode. And again, my lack of planning means I was a little bit woolly in places. Uh, I was referring to Michael Imperioli's character from The Sopranos and called him Maltesanto instead of Maltesanti, Christopher Maltesanti. That sort of stuff really annoys me. When you just drop a little bit of accuracy, it's uh, it's frustrating. But there you go. I've only myself to blame. Uh, I do move into a more general discussion of fathers. I ponder what we might look for from our fathers. I discuss the sentimentalization of fathers and the word dad. Um, and critical of that and I also talk about the idea of institutions as proxy parents of society and as proxy fathers and what we do when they fail us and I conclude with a poem that I wrote for my own father uh, I wrote it earlier this year but only recently made it public I put it up on the clearout.com last week and yeah that's how i end today's uh episode so it's dads all the way some good many bad uh i critique my own uh i critique aspects of my own parenting and yeah that's what's going on that's what you've got to look forward to so i'll see you there real soon cheers not gonna change my Hi, my name is Dara Clear and you're listening to The Clear Out. How are you? How are you coping with this astonishing world event, the trauma, the horror, the catastrophe, the life-altering nature of this world-shattering moment? Yes, that's right, folks. I'm talking about Facebook going down. 
How did you survive? Will they write books about this? Will we never forget the 4th of October 2021? The day Facebook stopped. Dun, dun, dun. Where were you? I remember I was I was in my kitchen and yeah, I, I just I was just going to check on one of my friends because I wanted to send them a meme. Uh, I wanted to send them a meme from Frozen and I, 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 sorry, I, I couldn't do it. The, the, the Facebook page just wouldn't respond. And then I went to WhatsApp to text my friend to tell him Facebook isn't working and WhatsApp wasn't working either. And I couldn't even console myself by putting up a picture of my lunch on Instagram because Instagram is also owned by Facebook. I'm going to be in therapy for a very long time. (laughs) Is that what it was like? Is that what it was like for you? It's pretty mental. I was was laughing because, as some of you may know who listen to the podcast, I've only very recently uh, started setting foot in the murky world of social media. And I just thought, well, isn't this ironic? Little, a little over a month after I start using it, maybe the whole thing is gone forever. Uh, I still don't know what the cause of the massive outage was. Uh, I think it all went down for just under six hours. But while it was happening, was I was thinking, wow, is this like this? Is, is this a huge uh, Russian? Was my first thought. <laughs> is this a, a Putin-esque uh, cyber attack? Is all our information being stolen? Are we all somehow going to be taken over? Um, And I just thought, wow, imagine that. Just after starting and the end of the world as we know it is upon us. Anyway, it came back. It came back, didn't it? And there we all were, heads down, just life as normal. Do you know what it makes me think of? Do you remember the end of The Truman Show? the end of the Truman Show, the um, the mid-90s Jim Carrey movie where he plays a reality show star who doesn't know he's a reality show star. A very, very, very clever concept. And basically, yeah, he is a baby born into a reality show and the reality show is built around his life and he's the only one in the show who doesn't know it's all a all a setup so a very sort of postmodern take on that uh, with a lot of dark humor and uh oh god peter weir who directed witness wasn't it peter weir i'm pretty sure it was peter weir who directed it and a brilliantly icy and sinister stroke pathological Ed Harris overseeing it all as as Christoph, the, the creator of The Truman Show. And in the story of the movie, The Truman Show is this like phenom, it's an absolute, you know, phenomenal, phenomenally popular reality show uh, with people glued to it all around the world. And of course, it really foreshadowed uh, the, the the mass consumption of popular media 
but the very end of the movie, the very satisfying sort of denouement is Jim Carrey's Truman character overcoming his lifelong phobia of water to basically sail to the end of the world, which happens to be just the end of the studio set uh, in which the show takes place. And he kind of clangs into the wall, which is the horizon, and escapes. And the last the last shot of Truman is him mounting this almost invisible staircase and exiting through the sky and looking at the camera and bidding a good morning, good afternoon and good night and he disappears and then we get to see all the people watching on TV and they're all like oh my god and people are cheering and crying and and then the moment <laughs> the moment that's really the kind of the kicker is then someone just goes eh, what's on next and just clicks it's gone, it's over and not another thought is given and I think that that's probably what happened last night or this morning or wherever you were or whenever you were when you realised Facebook was back up. It's just like, eh, whatever. Let me just click on this. Let me just tap on that. Let me just upload the next thing. So there you go. Now, uh, should I comment on the weather? It's a beautiful, beautiful October day. An autumnal delight. Sun beaming in the window. A bit fresh out there. Leaves falling. Nice wind blowing today. Um, but I'm not going anywhere because my daughter is sick. So she's been home for the last couple of days. She went to a birthday party at the weekend. Maybe that's where it happened. She was bouncing on a bouncy castle for a few hours. And then Sunday night, I've got a sore throat. And that's all she wrote. So she's been down with a cold for the last couple of days. And that curtails my outings. And that's as it should be. I'm just uh, (laughs) tending to my fatherly duties. And that is really going to be the theme of today's episode. I'll see if I can pull together all my thoughts and my impulses to go wandering and make them adhere to a central idea of fatherhood and fathers. And I think that idea that I just referred to uh, from the Truman Show of the the overseeing, controlling, sinister, icy father. Pure, pure detached manipulation and really, even though that character Ed Harris certainly views Truman as a son or as his son, as in his creation. So Christoph is really in a, a God role. There's there's ego, there's ego attached. It's all a projection or an extension of his ego. Look what I've created. Look at this wonderful thing I've created. So it's a little bit like Ozymandias, you know, look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Uh, now that as a model of fatherhood is not that attractive let's be frank the controlling dispassionate removed aloof father the coldness I mean that's that's the big shutout isn't it 
because that's really what we want that's what we want from our parents is is to feel the love <laughs> and the distant father is a bit of a trope and the father who's away working um, or the father who's emotionally unavailable um, or the father who leaves I mean these are all types and tropes and are written about and obsessed over uh, and are a very real thing and have of course very real impact in the real world Um, but as ever I'm going to fooster around the world of artistic creation via stage and movies and perhaps tv as well but i will i will dabble here and there in in my own reality um yeah so where to begin that's the question well i want to begin with james gandolfini so I last night rewatched the very first episode of The Sopranos, the sort of watermark series of this golden age of American television, which ran from, I think, well, it's definitely started in 1999, and that's always striking when you watch it again and you see the Twin Towers. Uh, hovering over Manhattan in the opening credits but 1999 until I don't know 2006 2007 and to repeat a point I made in an earlier episode it was fascinating to me last night to go okay this this was 1999 which feels like quite a long time ago because kind of was 22 years ago and What's more striking to me is this point I made before about how your sense of where certain movie moments or certain popular culture moments, your sense of where they happened on your own personal timeline and how they resonated with you, how there's a kind this this strange um, this strange loss of the timeline, a strange loss of chronology or or continuity or a sense of when what happened and I was experiencing that last night looking at James Gandolfini being brilliant and really quite fully realized as Tony Soprano already in the very first episode and I was thinking that's only six years after True Romance uh, the Tarantino scripted Tony Scott directed um sort of crime caper um you know as i say from 1993 which starred christian slater and patricia arquette as two young lovers who go on this adventure um and you know ends in a you know bloodbath in la uh with a lot of crazy colorful characters and full of in the script full of Tarantino flourishes um, I think it's accepted generally that the Christian Slater character Clarence was a bit of a Tarantino proxy um, a lover of Hong Kong Kung Fu movies and Elvis and all things cool and with an encyclopedic kind of pop culture knowledge 
of everything that mattered. But there's a memorable sequence in that movie uh, where James Gandolfini as this sort of hitman in hitman stroke enforcer for uh, the mob comes looking for a suitcase of cash that has ended up in the hands of Patricia Arquette and Christian Slater and he tracks them down Christian Slater's out and he finds Patricia Arquette in her motel room and proceeds to just kind of very sadistically beat her up with this very kind of malevolent pseudo-sexual leering grin on his face and it ends up being this kind of extraordinary fight sequence where she ultimately triumphs in an, in a very satisfying climax to the fight um, and I think shot and choreographed you know brilliantly by Tony Scott um, but yeah I was just thinking like James Gandolfini then it just seems like a it's a completely it's a different era so like 1993 just seemed like a world away from the the sort of zeitgeisty feel of of the Sopranos and the Sopranos really does kind of have its feet it does have its feet in the 90s still and yet watching it last night you can't help but be struck by just the absolute quality of of the writing and the the the, the production values the acting um you know the way it was directed you know written and directed by David Chase and just recognizing this is going to stand the test of time extremely well and the the self referential characters fully tuned into um fully tuned into this sort of iconography of of America um you know in the very first episode Tony Soprano he's he's referring to you know the the sort of the the death of masculinity the death of uh, strong leading men and he he cites Gary Cooper like you know where are those guys gone you know the guys who got got shit done and it, it, it's it's kind of brilliant like it, it sets up you know it's such a great setup because you're looking at this man who's you know fundamentally a, a homicidal um mobster who will absolutely take care of business in the most brutal ways imaginable um and in his own mind he's got these kind of heroic idealistic notions of what a good man is and already in that very first episode you're looking at James Gandolfini just presenting this brilliantly complex fully realized um characterization of Tony Soprano like he's just fully inhabited and I was struck last night going I was struck last night watching it thinking all these little moments from the first episode in my if, I, if, if I'd been asked to recall half a dozen of those episodes I would have placed them two or three seasons in because they felt so indelible and I think that's testament to again to the writing and to the the characterization as as rendered by those great actors particularly 
James Gandolfini and Edie Falco as uh, as Carm, the wife. Um, but anyway, I don't want to get stuck on a big uh, love affair deep dive with The Sopranos. I think it's well worth watching. I'm not sure if I'm going to go the whole journey and go through the lot, but there you go. We'll wait and see. Um, that is my 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 curiosity to watch that again was sparked by um sparked by the by the knowledge that the many saints of newark um which is a a david chase uh written movie uh based on the same characters that were in the sopranos but it's going back in time and looking at a young a young tony soprano and focusing on his uncle um uh dicky montesanto is that right montesanto um, played in the movie by Alessandro Nivola. I haven't seen it yet. It's getting, I think, mixed reviews. I'm not sure what to expect. But anyway, that's kind of why The Sopranos are topical again. Whatever. Now, what I was thinking about, reflecting on Tony Soprano, was that he is ultimately a, a representation of American fatherhood. And flawed American fatherhood. I mean, that's obvious. Um, so, well, I say it's obvious insofar as it's, a, you know, the, the, the whole show is built around the driving force of every storyline or all the kind of main storylines. You know, it's Tony's angst. It's Tony's reckoning with his own um, his own masculinity, his own ability to lead, his own ability to emerge from the, the, the shadows of his forefathers, his reckoning with his mother, his reckoning with his rivals, his reckoning with Carmela. And I suppose his, his reckoning with his own kind of, his own sense of self, his own soul. And, you know, it, the, 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 the scale of his performance really colored the whole show i mean he was the sort of the centrifugal force around which everything else revolved and absolutely was absolutely able to carry that weight um and astonishing really that he he died so young he was only he was only 51 when he he passed away uh, a few years ago um and like in his he must have been 37 or so when he started filming The Sopranos. So, yeah, anyway, amazing. But, yeah, this idea then that really The Sopranos becomes this depiction of family. Family and failed fatherhood. And I would also include in this conversation uh, Brian Cranston as Walter White in Breaking Bad as the kind of bookish science teacher, chemistry teacher, who becomes a crack manufacturer, you know, crystal meth crack manufacturer and distributor and massive kind of drug player over the course of that series and find, finds himself accessing a whole other, um, a whole other kind of beast within himself and really, what's his motivation? He's doing it for his family. He's doing it for his family. Uh, he thinks, you know, he's diagnosed with cancer and he, ha he wants to provide for his wife, their 
young baby, uh, their son. And again, what you have is the father warping and morphing into something, in the case of Breaking Bad, into something almost demonic. His humanity is really no longer present by the time you get to the end of that series, um, which makes it, it's, it's, you know, it's brutal, it's harrowing. And it's a different journey to Tony Soprano because Tony Soprano arrives and he's already immersed in the life of crime and murder and punishment beatings and, you know, sociopathology. Um, whereas Walter White's character, the Walter White character is, he's a school teacher and sort of a, a beta or beta, 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 <laughs> a beta male. Um, you know, the, the, the bookish one, the one who doesn't stand up, uh, the one who is, is, is mocked by his, um, by his brother-in-law uh, who works for the, for the DEA. But they're both explorations of, of what? Of fatherhood and fatherhood as wrapped up in the, the, the challenge of, you know, the, the, the challenge of living up to the American dream. And I think that this is something that you can go right through uh, American great American um, you know movies and great American drama on stage in particular to see how this is explored again and again and I think a very 20th century obsession in fact and I was thinking also of two of Arthur Miller's great plays so if you look at uh, Death of a Salesman and All My Sons, they are absolutely about family and flawed fatherhood. These deeply flawed patriarchal figures who come to a reckoning with their self-deception, with their dishonesty, with their personal failure with their moral weakness and in both cases in both of those plays that the reckoning comes at the hands of their sons so in death of a salesman you have willie loman as the sort of um you know grandiose salesman who has his kind of patter and his banter and talks himself up but you know, is, is, is always hiding from his his evident mediocrity and his, you know, the, the way he's merely, merely this kind of everyman cog in the, you know, in the capitalist machine. And it's his sons who are like, come on, stop, just stop this, this waffle, this nonsense, this, these lies and just be real and accept you're not all that. Um, but it's too painful. Like it, it, it's, a, it's, it's crushing defeat for Willie Loman to actually own that and to admit it and to confess to, to, his, to his nothingness, to his, his lack of achievement. 
and the the profound frustration or the pathology inducing madness of not being the big hitter not being the superstar not being the the you know the 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 the, the the uber success, the all father. And in All My Sons, it, it's it's more sinister because in that one, the father, uh, the character is Joe Keller and he's, he, he knowingly sells defective machine parts to the military, which without question results in the death of American pilots and soldiers and again he is faced with his his own venality his greed his his moral ambivalence uh at the end where one of his sons confronts him and rips into him and makes him face his moral failing and ultimately he he disappears back into the house cuz that play that play all all of that play takes place in the kind of the the yard of the family home, but he disappears into his house and and kills himself at the end of the play. So you know Miller again giving us two great reckonings of of failed fatherhood or misguided fatherhood, and I suppose there's a theme of the smallness of men cheating their way to the top or are faking their way or pretending they've got it made when they haven't and it's a response it's a response to the pressure it's a response to the pressure to to exceed all others to succeed at all costs to to outdo everyone else so you can hold yourself, hold your head high and go, I am the man. I did do it. And I suppose Miller was pointing out the, 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 the you know, the, the, I don't know, like, is he pointing out the, the, the personal? I mean, they're, they're beautiful personal plays about those families and they're great characters to engage with. But it felt very much like they were, uh, you know, they were proxies for the American male. They were proxies for American everyman who would have been facing the same struggles, the same, you know, the same battle with ambition and the same pain of failure or making the same Faustian bargains to get to the top but at what cost? I mean, the cost of one's soul, the cost of one's morality, the cost of one's nobility, the cost of the admiration of your children. So for your, your grown-up children to go, I, I, you know, I've no respect for you. You're, you are a bad man. Um, and so if you want to put it in those terms... It's not only an exploration of fatherhood, but an exploration of masculinity. And that does, of course, chime massively with The Sopranos and with Breaking Bad as well. Um, Now, if you look at someone like Eugene O'Neill, a very different kind of playwright, although another 20th century heavyweight of American stage and 
I suppose his two big plays are The Iceman Cometh and uh, A Long Day's Journey into Night. But for me, more, much more personal plays than Arthur Miller's, in my opinion. But and dealing with a lot of um, Eugene O'Neill's own experience, which I guess was wrapped up in alcoholism and you know family trauma and repression and guilt and he was also writing i think the iceman cometh was written in 1939 coming out of the you know the the end of the depression i don't think it was produced until 1946 and that centers around a group of characters who are basically drunks in a bar who all play with their own narratives their own sort of self 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 mythologizing and tweak their memories and tweak their narratives to to better serve their present survival um and really quite a bleak depiction of those characters if we are meant to take them as representative of again american everyman and in A Long Day's Journey Into Night, it's a family drama and in that way would echo uh, would echo some of Miller's work as well. Um, I mean, let's remind ourselves, when Miller went for the sort of the metaphorical or the allegorical, he gave us um, The Crucible, um, which is still, I think, a very powerful piece of work about moral and religious hypocrisy um and of course that was inspired by the 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 communist witch hunts led by uh, the joe mccarthy um and again you have got a i can't remember if the the sort of the the hero of the crucible which is is john proctor is he a father i can't remember um pretty pretty brilliantly played by daniel day lewis in the the film of the same name um from again i think the early early 90s um joan allen as his wife and winona ryder in one of those eye-catching young performances um of her early career as the uh the sort of the spurned young woman who stirs it all up all the the madness anyway um long day's journey into night a depiction of the family riven by alcoholism um dwindling you know the father figure is a you know semi-retired actor to the tyrone family and the the mother is perhaps addicted struggling with her addiction to morphine uh, and again it's just the it's, it's it's legacies of of addiction legacies of addiction fueled trauma and generational guilt and pain and judgment and resentment and those those failed expressions of love so o'neill very different to o'miller to o'miller <laughs> i've just made him irish o'miller <laughs> what's her name jablonski is it o jablonski from offaly uh no so this idea again of fathers and failed fathers uh i mean the 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 the, the counterpoint 
uh, I think if you go to American cinema, and I'm saying with an American product at the moment, you know, the counterpoint is probably these slightly idealized, uh, you know, these slightly idealized depictions of father figures. And I'm going to use father figures loosely because it's not necess- we're not necessarily seeing the characters in relation to family or children. But I'll go for one that is explicitly that and would be cited as a sort of an idealized father. And that would be Gregory Peck as Atticus Finch in To Kill a Mockingbird, which I think was, oh, was it 1962 maybe? Um, I'm not sure if I've got that right. It was either late 50s or early 60s. Um, but there he's the the very sort of moral lawyer who's defending the black man who's been accused of raping a white woman and he's walking this line and he's kind of the I mean I suppose it's the it's a little bit the kind of the white savior uh trope where you know one good white person is going to be the savior of the sort of the black struggle and stand up to the 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 embedded uh, bigotry and hatred of uh, the the racism of the southern states, and you know Peck portraying Atticus Finch as incredibly sort of you know measured, calm, controlled, and with absolute sort of moral certitude, so incredibly ennobled. Um, in that depiction now another example of that might be and again not explicitly a father but the the good moral white father and that would be Henry Fonda in 12 Angry Men and again there's the racism undercurrent in that the the, the jury is trying to decide the fate of a, a young I think he's a young Hispanic kid who stabbed somebody and Henry Fonda the you know the drama of the story is Henry Fonda slowly you know convincing one member at a time of their their inability to come 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 in with a guilty verdict because they don't have sufficient evidence and trying to do the right thing and be thoughtful and be considered and be ostensibly objective um so you get these these idealized you know versions of fathers um i was thinking i was thinking of oh yeah there was also that other thing you go back a few years again you go back earlier go back to the the 40s gosh maybe it's the 30s i'd have to go and check my 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 film history but you've got you know guys like spencer tracy and bing crosby playing priests and very much the sort of the Irish American, the Irish Catholic, um, you know, Irish American Catholic priest, as absolutely <laughs> like they're, they're almost romantic figures, you know, love interest figures almost, you know, and portrayed, you know, almost with you know soft focus lighting, um, and deified as you know absolutely worthy of our adulation but they're proxy fathers again um i mean spencer tracy won one of his oscars i referred to that movie not too long ago um for captain's courageous where i think he was playing like a portuguese sailor quite ridiculous and was the um 
he was the like the father figure on the boat to the young kid oh, I've just gone blank on his name I wanted to say what Freddie Bartholomew Freddie Highway who was that child actor from way back when might have to come back to that one so again you've got the you've got these kind of romanticized versions of fathers as well and you know that's something that I'd be very resistant to now in the context of an old Hollywood movie I can let it wash and I can set aside a bit of critical thinking and suspend disbelief and just go with it if overall the movie holds together. But I was looking at something earlier today, um, and I'll, I'll explain in a little while. While I'll, I'll explain in a little while why I'm talking about fathers today. Um, but I was looking online earlier for quotes, quotes about fathers, <laughs> and. This one kept coming up again and again. And I was just, I was just found myself going, ah, give me a break, lads, will you? No interest whatsoever. And fundamentally what it was, it was anyone can be a father, but it takes someone really special to be a dad. And I was like, I, I don't know why, but that just pushes a button in me. And I go, will you go on to feck? I have this sentimentalization of dad a little bit like last week when i was talking about the mom thing i i don't like it it's it's soppy it's schmaltzy it's it's just it's too far too simplistic reductive unthinking and it's just it's just nonsense isn't it isn't it i don't know I mean, don't get me wrong. It's not like I'm not, I'm not. I'm not saying you can't appreciate a father. I'm not saying you can't appreciate a dad. Um, I mean, one of my 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 daughter calls me Dada. Um, the Dada movement. <laughs> Is that me on the toilet? Is that the Dada movement? Uh, <laughs> um, so, actually speaking, speaking of which, <laughs> that's a segue I wasn't expecting. So there I was, it's like the, the, the morning, the morning, the early morning, um, the early morning pattern in hashtag blessed. It just seems to be an avalanche of, of, um, of bowel movements, an avalanche of, of um, one entity's feces after another. So I heard before my alarm went off early this morning and, you know, we're back, we're back in the dark days. So, you know, anything around six o'clock now, it's dark. And I could hear the marketing assistant, Ruby, scratching in her kitty litter. And I was like, oh man, it's not, is it? And then my alarm went and, you know, sure enough, I walked out and her, her, her toilette is in, in, in the bathroom that my daughter and I share and yeah there was a an unmistakable pungency <laughs> in the air and I was just like oh god so I'm like kind of sleepily rubbing my eyes and then removing the offensive items from the kitty litter and depositing them in the uh, in the toilet and then you know spraying a bit of air freshener throwing down a bit of food for the kitten and I was like oh well while I'm here I may as well go through my own morning ablutions and that's fine and I head down through the house and actually speaking of Ruby the marketing assistant she's right here at the mark at the mic 
pause on my phone. Let's see, have you got a purr for us, have you? What's happening? Anyway, I went down to the kitchen and that's where the head of marketing resides overnight, Marlon. And sure enough, right there in her kitty litter is another generous deposit. I mean, this is, it's just inescapable. These uh, comical, comical gifts from um, from the pets in the house. I'm sure if the uh, the finance department, which consists of the uh, the three chickens, I'm sure if if they were allowed to to sleep in the house, they'd they'd arrange a special a special delivery for me as well. Um, the guinea pigs keep it all contained in 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 their area. What did we decide their department was? Hmm, gone blank. Anyway, we were talking about idealized dads and the sentimentalized dad. Not helpful. I mean, the sentimentalization of anything really is, it's it's an indulgence and it's a removal of complexity and there's no learning. There's no learning to be had. There's no lesson to be taught. It's a type of, it's a type of idolatry, I suppose. Uh <laughs> Um, oh, that's Spencer Tracy. I, I, I just remembered um, the, the, the one of the main roles where he played a priest, an Irish priest, was in Boys Town. And that was, I think, the year after Captain's Courageous. And I think he won back-to-back Oscars for those roles, which um, I'm trying to think who else has done that. There might be somebody else. Did Mahershala Ali win back-to-back Oscars for Moonlight and Green Book. Green Book, very flawed. Um, Yeah, not great. I think Green Book, that's only a few years ago. Is that 2019, 2018? But in Moonlight, Mahershala Ali plays a father figure. There you go, there's a connection. He plays a father figure to the the protagonist, the young the young black kid who is struggling with his sexuality, and we meet Mahershala Ali early on in the movie. And I've gone blank on the kid's the the, the character's name of the kid, who you know he's the driver of the whole story, but he's exploring an abandoned house possibly used you know has been used for drugs or by homeless people or whatever and Mahershala Ali's drug dealer character is looming outside the house and it's there's a sense of foreboding but then uh, but then Mahershala Ali becomes this really lovely father figure to him incredibly um, gentle nurturing guiding um there's that lovely scene where he's helping him swim in the sea uh really nice a really yeah a, a lovely depiction of what a father figure can be and that makes me think that you know one of the things perhaps we all seek in our fathers is safety the the provision of safety that this is a safe person to be with 
and in that place of safety an exchange of love can take place and in that place of safety the exploration of and revelation of self can happen and I don't know is there a a more intimate human transaction um, that's that's not not sexual uh, than that you know the 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 permission the permission to to be yourself the permission to be to be vulnerable and children are by default vulnerable and that's why failed parenting is so painful um and i suppose that's really if, if i look at my own parenting style my own fathering uh of my daughter uh, the, the word safety made me think of it because like occasionally when we're out and about doing stuff and um, particularly in the great outdoors um my daughter when she expresses fear or anxiety or uncertainty i i i just usually say to her look when you're as long as you're with me nothing bad is going to happen to you um which you know, I'm not saying that with my superhero cape on. I'm not striking a pose and puffing out my chest and, you know, standing with the sun behind me so I can be dramatically backlit. I'm just trying to plant a seed of of trust, I suppose. And the idea is not really to make her dependent on me keeping her safe, but to encourage her to to feel safe to take risks and face her fears uh, when she's in my company and hopefully that'll enable her to do that when she's not in my company as well so she can access that confidence in herself um i'm asking myself now as i as i as i speak like what what you know what do we wish from you know what do we, what do we wish from our fathers uh what do we hope is there uh, you know and and flipping it how do we want to be thought of as fathers um let me just kind of jump to that one for a second i mean if i project to the future and imagine my daughter as an adult i mean at the negative end of the scale i hope the the very at the very least she doesn't think i'm an idiot (laughs) a buffoon (laughs) and also that she doesn't think i'm a psychopath um I'd take that. I mean, that's, you know, I'm like, let's, let's look at the negatives that aren't present. That's my, uh, that's my baseline. So I'm not really looking for gains. I'm just kind of trying to eliminate losses and that I'd I'd be, I'd be quite happy with that. You know, if I can, if I can help her on her journey to become independent and strong and confident and self-loving, self-regarding, in the best possible sense um i think she's got all the other equipment she needs she's a she's she's a she's a lovely a lovely kid (laughs) um yeah but but like i mean i I suppose what i'm trying to get back to then is this 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 idea of that kind of wet saccharine you know notion of oh dad is this and dad is that i i I mean i suppose it's, it's me 
jumping too quickly as usual a little bit of my impulsive judgment and anger to a sort of hallmark card version or instagram version of fatherhood um which i just instinctively reject i'm much more interested in the the complexity i'm much more interested in the the deeper notes the under the under the surface notes of of what fatherhood might be in its best sense and if i go back to that idea of safety i think that's in there something about reliability safety uh trust even temperedness i i fail i fail at that one i fail massively on the even tempered front i'm i blow hot and to give my father credit that he's absolutely due he rarely expressed anger um i mean you knew if he was angry something had gone seriously pear-shaped and it was a jolt because he was very even-tempered and good-humored and agreeable jovial uh and kind of mellow and it wasn't because of all the drugs he was taking um no that was his i think that was that that was is his natural um his natural disposition and it's, it's a bit of a family trait i would argue that his his six sisters have a lot of that as well um and innate sunniness or, or positivity or a philosophical bent um maybe i'm wrong if any of those sisters are listening you might like to contradict me on that but um that's a weak area for me uh as i have been documenting here on the podcast i am you know i'm not always very good at controlling my anger my impatience my irritation my frustration and i am i'm looking at that i'm looking at that constantly and it's 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 a I see it as a lack of control on my part. I see it as selfish, somewhat selfish and indulgent on my part and not taking due care and not thinking about the consequences of thoughtless behavior. Um, It's on one level, it's being inconsiderate and giving voice to an anger that is probably related to other things. And it's... To my mind, I don't really think it's acceptable that my daughter is occasionally in the firing line. I mean, I understand that, look, that's what happens. That's family life. Um, but I don't know. I, th- I think it's it's on me. Like, it's on me to to look at that stuff and go, hold on. Like, what, like what, what's your legacy going to be? And if I'm contributing to fear or if i'm contributing to to shame or i'm if i'm contributing to to smallness or withdrawal um or diminishment of self in my daughter i mean oh i mean that just the thought of it just kind of stops me in my tracks i mean it's no i mean it's i have a role to play here it's as simple as that and that's something that I need to 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 not fail to prioritize. I mean, that's that's how I feel about it. And yeah. So anyway, look. Yeah. I mean, I I, I don't want to get stuck in, in in that. That's starting to that's starting to be a bit of a downer, frankly. Um, let's focus on the good times. 
Hey, let's focus on a dad card. Ah, dad. Ah. Um, but look, to go back to to go back to other bad dads <laughs> explorations. I mean, to, to to try and put a cap on the the twentieth century American exploration of fatherhood. You know, we get to the end of the nineties, and you've got Homer Simpson firmly in place, and the sort of the litany of sitcom dads who are relentlessly the figures of fun and the figures of ridicule but of course that's that's a natural that's a natural sort of impulse in us all to to poke fun at self-seriousness or to poke fun at the 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 high moral standing of the stern-faced patriarch and to kind of try and find the levity um underneath that i mean certainly you know that's what my daughter does that's her her number one mission if she thinks i'm grumpy her absolute conviction is i just need to make that guy smile and once he's smiling you know that's i'm in that's the way in that's the way past the uh that's the way into the fortress that's the way through that uh, that barricade of of um of frustration that barricade of censure of judgment of anger of intolerance um and so there's a you know that th- that's a th- it's a comedic that's a comedic trope and it, it's a it's a it's a comic impulse to go let me get behind this this facade of disapproval um and this facade of um kind of almost self parodying parodying in ennoblement um where you know again i mean i referred to it a moment ago you know striking the pose of the 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 uber dad um no it's not going to wash it's not going to wash um so yeah i mean uh, other figures from from the arts come to mind uh i was asking myself Who's the worst father in Shakespeare? And King Lear came to mind immediately because of the division uh, he sows between his daughters towards the end of his life where he's trying to decide how to divide up his kingdom but he demands a declaration of loyalty, fealty, love from his three daughters and the older two go, yeah, yeah, whatever, yeah, we love you, yeah, come on, give us, give us the land, give us our kingdoms. And the youngest, um, Cordelia, is like, uh-uh, no. She kind of recognises the the uh, the wrongness of his request. And the, you know, using the the inheritance as a bribe to, to bring out the love. And she's like, no, I'm not doing it. And she gets banished and... The you know the the a sequence of bloodshed unfolds, bloodletting, and Lear loses his mind, um, and that is sort of the you know that is that that is that that tragedy, um, the, the foolishness, uh, the foolishness of ego-driven pride, um, and exposes the sort of the insecurity of of the the father figure 
and the 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 powerful man the powerful leader the 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 godhead the figurehead um and speaking of that we can jump forward in time back into the american movie uh canon and you go to you go to the godfather um and again godfather as okay as the role the role of backup parent in catholicism um but also taking it more literally as god father the father who is god of all and brando marlon brando epitomizing that in the the godfather movie and trying to guide his sons wisely uh in the face of his own his own fading and dealing with the the loss of the hothead sonny um you know played by memorably by james Kahn, and being utterly bereft when michael the son who they had the family had safely kept out of the organized crime business being utterly bereft when he realizes that you know michael has taken decisive action to to avenge the uh, attempted assassination of his father and the killing of Sonny um, by taking out the rival and the the chief of police brilliantly played by Sterling Hayden and Al Lettieri in that famous diner scene um, where the young Pacino yeah yeah he does so well there <laughs> and of course Brando is the is the father who in spite of being the the mafia chief has regained his sense of the shoulds and shouldn'ts of fatherhood and has mellowed into this sort of background figure um but managed you know you know we follow him and we feel we feel his love for his family and in a way the tragedy of the godfather and you know the tragedy of the the godfather i won't say trilogy i'll say duology let's not i won't i don't really care to include godfather 3 here but the tragedy is the the cost of michael's actions uh al pacino becoming the new godfather but losing losing sight of what's really important and failing so badly as the father figure that he kills or has killed um has executed uh fredo his brother who effectively is you know you know is in a son role like the weak lost helpless son who failed and Pacino's you know Pacino's decision like as Michael is to punish him you know the the ultimate punishment death execution um and I don't know if anything epitomizes the tragedy of the Godfather more than that moment at the end of Godfather 2 where I if I remember correctly it's after the mother has died and then as soon as he gets word that the mother has died, he's, he puts the, he gives the nod for Fredo to be executed. Um, 
and again just terrific terrific storytelling but the worst type of father surely um killing the killing the the, the helpless family member um and i'm saying that even though i'm acknowledging that fredo is the brother not a son but i think i think the the idea holds um yes anyway I was also going to talk about Titus Andronicus, who ends up eating his own children, but <laughs> not knowingly. That's uh, that's revenge. That's a pretty that's a pretty dark Shakespeare play. His his enemy kills his sons who have raped and dismembered and cut out the tongue of her daughter, and so she gets the sons, kills them, bakes them in a pie, and feeds them to Titus Andronicus delicious uh so that's a failing isn't it that's a failing of the father if your sons end up doing something like that um and then you consume them eating your own spawn yes okay i've gone i've gone i've gone off i've gone off and away i'm sure there were some other references i wanted to throw in there but look um before i go to somewhere pleasant um i was i was reflecting on this earlier today because the news came out, there was a, a headline, a very grim, chilling headline uh, that came from France, whereby the the Catholic Church, like the news has come out that basically the Catholic Church since the 50s in France has been responsible for the abuse of 216,000 children. That's, that's, I mean, like, that's just an astonishing figure, isn't it? I mean, how many lives were ruined? You know, not just the individuals who were abused, but where did those people end up? What lives did they end up leading? How many of them ended their own lives? How many of them repeated the cycle of abuse? And you just think, this idea then of, like whatever about personalizing it and going, you know, evil priests or paedophile priests or bad priests you're talking about institutions like institutions as proxy parents because that is i guess what societies get built on institutions they are the 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 bricks and mortar are the institutional parent figures of our of our societies and these are the 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 organizations that we entrust the safety of our citizens to these are the institutions that we entrust the safety of our society to so you're talking about institutions of of education you're talking about institutions of policing institutions of healthcare institutions of governance and they are all in their own way proxy figures and look i don't know if you want to think of them in terms of are they proxy fathers being that they are the institutions that have largely been established set up run by and um you know run by run by men of course um i mean i don't really want to go there in terms of like are, are, are 
are societies built and is legislation drafted built um you know in the shape of men and male values and male dynamics uh that's a whole other area of debate that I'm not equipped really to to, to wade into. Uh, I, I think there there's a thought in there worth exploring, but I won't go there now. But the idea, though, that an institution, I mean, a church institution, and of course, for God's sake, you know, that for think about it for a millisecond, priests are fathers, brothers, and fathers, and that's how they're addressed, father. And it's the ultimate betrayal that this person is meant to be the father of a community, you know, the father, the shepherd, the the herdsman, the father of the flock. And they betray the trust, they betray the role and do what they do to satisfy their own desires to you know to act out the forbidden to transgress to abuse the power to abuse the privilege of that position and when you see a figure like that today in the news 216,000 and you know that that is one country and you know that there are many others and Ireland is one of them and the USA is another one and Australia is another one and there must be countless others and those abused figures suddenly become not hundreds of thousands but perhaps millions and that millions becomes more than that when you think of the generational pain the generational trauma and the legacies of abuse and the legacies of victimization and the the you know the ghosts that linger still in those shattered lives and like and the strength of those people to survive if they have and the strength of those people to overcome their pain and the strength of those people to to not continue the cycle of abuse the strength of those people to perhaps well in some cases i presume to, the, the strength of those people to forgive um and the strength of those people to to own themselves and to emerge um, as functioning grown-ups. I mean, it, I salute them. Um, but, but, but I feel anger. I feel anger when you think of the institutions that somehow seem to continue to be protected. And yes, we are talking about the Catholic Church. I mean, you can't, you, you can't, you, 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 you can't be ambiguous about that. That's who it is. It's not, oh, it's this one guy or that other guy or it's that diocese or it's that archbishop or it's it's this person or that person. It just, this avoidance of facing it, it's, it's useless and nothing changes and there should be accountability. And again, I... You know, I don't go on deep dives into this stuff because maybe it's too depressing or it would make me too despondent or discouraged. But it's, um, I don't know. It, 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 it just, it, it's, got, it's got to stop, hasn't it? We, we can't keep giving 
institutional, um, you know, institutional horror shows. We can't keep giving them a pass. Someone has to pay. I mean, the victims have paid. They've all paid. There's no victim that hasn't paid. But some sort of reckoning, some sort of cleaning of house has to happen. Um, And I don't know how that process... I don't know what other institution has the moral courage to begin that process in a real meaningful way. I mean, I guess that's what, you know, the massively expensive tribunals of various countries are for. And... Uh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I question how successful they have been if they end up being, in a way, a little bit lip servicey, um, a little bit ineffectual. It's just a little bit of theatre to to satisfy people's quest for a sense of justice and allows us to go, well, someone's taken care of it, so we don't have to, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I mean, that... I'm going to argue, well, you know, my argument is those institutions are fathers that have failed and deserve to be dealt with uh, appropriately. Um, yeah, I don't know. Anyway, listen, <laughs> that's bad stuff and that's really, really deeply unpleasant and concerning and real. But... I want to go to something that's pleasant and real and nice and I'm going to indulge I'm going to indulge myself today. I'm thinking about fathers because I've been spending a bit of time with my own my own dad, uh, my own father who you know, he's he's getting older. That's that's the bottom line. He's getting older. Uh there's issues now with brain function. Uh there's cognitive impairment. There's slowing down. There's physical limitations. Um he he recently turned 79 and since i've come back from australia uh, 18 months ago you know i've been i've been looking at his his diminishment in very real terms and yeah i last week on the on my website for the for you know, where, where i've been blogging for uh, the last uh, almost 9 years i just put up a poem that i'd written about him which was an attempt to sort of to get into where his head might be when he's really struggling to be cognitively present when he's getting left behind uh, by the conversation where he's not knowing the references, the names, the the historic events and observing him sort of being lost in the midst of all that. And I... I wrote I wrote the poem about it um, to, to just to try and kind of go, is, is this what his experience is? And still seeing so much of him present in other ways. Um, and this sort of it's like a, it's like a fading in and out of being present and then not present. And I suppose he the, the word like in, in terms of the medical people that we've seen the word dementia hasn't been used and he hasn't been given that diagnosis but he's probably on that path and i know it's something that's affected many many people and it's a conversation that is happening much more 
I did I did speak about this uh, in an earlier episode of the Clear Out because uh, I was talking about you know movies that have tapped into this experience uh, in recent times. Um, there's uh, Anthony Hopkins, the father, and Viggo Mortensen's falling. Um, yeah. So anyway, I mean, and, and others, um, and so you know, of course, sometimes it's used to kind of you know comic effect. So more sort of lampooning of of fathers and you know memory loss and being doddery and aged. But anyway, look, I um, I'm gonna read. I'm gonna read you the poem I wrote. I. I feel I feel I tapped into something that's very true about my father. I was going to read two poems, but maybe that's a bit too much. I might indulge another poem, um, maybe next time or in a couple of episodes, because I have another poem I wrote about my my father, which I wrote for his seventieth birthday, which is much more, um, it, it's much more a celebration of my father and what he represented to, to me, and you know in that poem. Well, you know, it's 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 I suppose it's what I fancy he represented to my brothers as well and maybe other young people he encountered. Um, and it's yeah, as I say, it's it, it, it's much more of a celebration uh, of his personality and uh, the sort of iconic status I afforded him. But I will save that for the next time. What I'm going to do now is I'm going to I'm going to read you this poem that I wrote earlier this year, but just made public last week. And it's called Breasting the Tape. They're not where I am, these faces I know. I am elsewhere, on the sunlit paths of my youth, jumping in shorts, over dustbins by the back door and escaping running 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 and grinning I grin now too but at what I don't know asked if I remember I know I don't too hard to pull a face from the fog a name from a bag full of letters. I offer one thing I do know and draw my finger from point A to point B. I sag and I slump and I stare into space. I don't think I am frightened but I may appear to be as someone who I am sure came from me looks at me with love and concern. My eyes ask why. I am certain it is my fault. I am certain I was there. I am certain I made the call. I am certain I set the tone, showed the way, lit the fire, gave the push. And now he is gone. But I'm told I'm wrong. Mostly my legs are gone too. Like my memories, they no longer hold me up in this world. I walk on kindling, brittle, easily broken, but I don't hear the snap and crunch 
as I stumble, as I fall. Everyone is faster than me, racing ahead, leaving me in the chasing pack. But suddenly, I am back. My legs are strong. My hunger to compete burns and I am eating up the ground under my feet. I see them all from start to finish, from past to present. My sons, their partners, their children, my wife, friends, family, animals, trees, the smoke in my hand, the drink on the table, the love I feel. I am running again, and I am grinning too. I greet them as I overtake, a backslap, a bum pat. I am back in the here and now. I know who I am. I am running. I am winning. I am breasting the tape. So there you go. That's from my father, Louis. He's a pretty cool guy. So look, on that note, I'm going to leave it. Bit of a journey from Tony Soprano to Louis Clear. <laughs> In several easy steps. Uh, I'm sure there were some other things I wanted to dip into. Um, but there you go. There's only so much you can do. And I've gone on. I've gone on plenty long enough with uh, stop-offs at the kitty litter. So, as always, thank you very much for listening and spending some time with me. I hope you got something out of this. I'm sure you have your own stories to tell about your fathers. Um, remember, you can throw me some love on social media. You'll find the links in the description for Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. You can email me uh, at theclearoutlive at gmail.com. And if you want to throw some of that love in the means of a financial contribution to the podcast, you can do so via the supporter link or the Patreon link, which you will also find in the description. So there you go. Uh, yeah, I can't think, I, I don't think there's anything else, is there? Okay, rock on. Keep fathering if you're a father and uh, do what you have to do to be part of the part of a good narrative. Uh Thanks again for listening. Mind yourselves. I will talk to you real soon. All the best. Take care. See you. Bye.